Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly Cash Like More Hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. to the Curbsiders Edutainment. This is our special mini-series on teaching from the Curbsiders. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Ira Kurzhanovskaya. On tonight's episode, we get to discuss mentorship with two great doctors in the field, Jane Liebschutz and Dr. Mitch Feldman. Before we get started with that, Ira, could you remind the audience what we do on this show? Sure, Molly. We are the internal medicine podcast for all things medical education. We use expert interviews to bring you teaching pearls and practice changing knowledge to inspire the next generation of medical educators. And a reminder that most episodes are available for free CME through VCU Health CE for all health professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. So we have a great conversation with our two guests tonight, uh, Dr. Mitch Feldman and Dr. Jane Liebwitz. We cover kind of the basics about starting a conversation about if someone is the right person to mentor with you, how to really set those guidelines about what you're both looking for, about the fact that a mentoring relationship really is a reciprocal re- relationship and something that both the mentor and the mentee can grow from. Um, So hopefully you'll get a lot of great practical tips and learn a lot from this episode. Our first guest, Dr. Mitch Feldman, is Professor, Associate Vice Provost, and Chief of the Department of General Internal Medicine at UCSF. He leads the UCSF Faculty Mentoring Program and co-directs the CTSI Mentor Training Program. Dr. Feldman's research focuses on mentoring in academic medicine and on psychiatric issues in medical patients. He is the former co-editor of the Journal of General Internal Medicine, and is the co-author of the book, Behavioral Medicine, A Guide for Clinical Practice. Dr. Feldman got his BA from John Hopkins, his master's in philosophy from Cambridge University, and his MD and IM training at UCSF. He loves to kayak and recently has taken up ceramics. And we're also joined by Dr. Jane Liebschutz. She is a primary care doctor and addiction medicine physician, a substance use researcher, educator, and administrator. She is the Chief of the Division of General Internal Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and UPMC. Her clinical and research agenda focuses on prevention and treatment of opioid use disorders, including safe opioid prescribing and disseminating treatments for opioid use disorders in non-specialty medical settings. She advocates for harm reduction and is passionate about physician wellness, a fantastic powerhouse teaching us about mentorship. So without further ado, let's get to it. So, Dr. Liebschutz, do you mind if we call you Jane for this recording? Perfectly fine. Wonderful. And Dr. Feldman, are you okay with us calling you Mitch today? Thank you. Um, Well, we are so excited to have both of you on the show. So excited to talk about mentoring, and we really appreciate your expertise and your time here. We wanted to start off just with some rapid-fire questions to get to know you a little bit better. Uh, Maybe, Mitch, we could start with you. Could you give us a one-liner to describe yourself? Sure. Thanks, Molly. I'm a husband and father of two grown children and a two-year-old grandson, and I love to read, travel, and since the pandemic, I've become an avid Peloton user. <laughs> and Jane, how about you? I'm a general internist and addiction medicine physician, health services and addiction researcher, and I'm a mom, wife, and Red Sox fan. Wonderful. 
one more question to get to know you. What is a book that you feel every physician should read? And maybe we'll start with Mitch. Do you want to answer that one? Sure. Actually, I've been reading a lot lately. Um, so I've got three quick, quickly three books to recommend. One is uh, called A Paragon by Colin McCann. And a, pir- and a Paragon is actually a a shape with infinite but countable number of sides, and which kind of gives you insight into what the book is about, which is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as seen through the eyes of two fathers who both lost their daughters uh, in the conflict there. And it's a fiction book, but based on a on a true story of the relationship between these two dads uh, as they uh, work together to try to forge uh, peace uh, in the Middle East. And um, two other books I'm, I've just read, I've just come back from a little trip to Hawaii, so had some time on the beach there to read. And one is Project Hail Mary by Andy Weir. I'm not normally a science fiction reader, but this is a really interesting book, sort of the reverse of global warming. This is global cooling um, caused by a strange little bacteria. And um, I finally got the insight about um, science fiction that it's really essentially about what it means to be human, which I think is certainly quite relevant to uh, to physicians. And then the other book, uh, I always have a nonfiction going at the same time by reading a book by Walter Isaacson called The Codebreakers, and it's about Jennifer uh, Doudna and CRISPR. I highly recommend that one. Thank you, Mitch. I love the three qu- three books, one question. I love it. And I'll turn to Jane. Do you have a book that you feel every physician should read? Yes. Um, Jerome Groupman, How Doctors Think. I, I read that book some years ago and I felt it was, um, aha, you know, really described my experience in medicine. And I highly recommend it to all, particularly learners, uh, students and residents. Yeah, and I, I'm curious to hear from both of you kind of what uh, made you passionate about mentorship and sort of what your specific roles are um, around mentorship right now. Um, Jane, can we start with you? Um, sure. So from the day I finished my fellowship, I was assistant associate, then uh, general medicine fellowship director. And I think I really honed my love for um, developing academic general internists uh, through that. And what's really cool is having seen many generations, I don't know, generations, but many groups and waves of former mentees, you know, take leadership roles, including being other division chiefs and running big projects. And it's, it's very, very satisfying, both the personal relationships as well as the opportunity to help people grow. That's wonderful. Yeah, I think that's one of the the true, um, you know, really wonderful things about teaching is is just seeing that progress and seeing how far people can go and and surprise you in ways that you didn't expect them to progress. Um, yeah, Mitch, how about you? Yeah, I think what I have to say very much echoes what Jane just said. It's so much about helping, you know, kind of support the career development, professional development, and personal development of the kind of the next generation. Um, you know, mentorship is all about kind of who kind of supported one's own career development and how do you pass that on? And I'm just passionate about passing it on. Um, I sort of backed into, and I, you know, I think I got passionate about mentoring before we defined it as mentoring. Um, kind of in, in retrospect, we didn't really call it mentoring back in the day. Just had senior faculty who helped, help support us. But I was lucky enough, UCSF, uh, early on decided to, um, create a, 
faculty mentoring program, and I was fortunate to be recruited in to help set that up. And I've been running that program for the past number of years. And so I um, kind of got the responsibility to create and, and build a mentoring program before I really knew much about it, honestly. And uh, kind of dove, I kind of dove into the business literature, Harvard Business Review and others, because uh, the business world was well ahead of us in academic uh, medicine in terms of uh, mentoring programs. So I had to educate myself um, about really kind of the, the science of mentoring um, once I got that position, that opportunity. And I wonder to that point, Mitch and Jane, um, in terms of passing on mentorship and watching your mentees become mentors themselves, I wonder what's the best advice you've ever received as a learner or even a mentee? Uh, and if you could share that with us, and maybe we'll turn to Jane first and then Mitch. So I have sort of two pieces of advice. One, when I was a medical student on my general surgery rotation, and I knew I wasn't going to be a surgeon, um, but the surgeon said to me, he said, you make a guess as to your best diagnosis, and then if the data and the clinical course doesn't fit, you have to be willing to rethink what you thought from the beginning. And I I feel like that has really, really held me in good stead. And I think when I recommended Jerome Groupman's book, it also goes along with sort of that philosophy. Um, so that's as a clinician advice. And as a leader, teacher, faculty, the best advice I had is from Amelia Benjamin, who's um, at Boston University. And she says that feedback is a gift. And as painful as feedback can be sometimes, you know, it is the most valuable, um, the most valuable thing that you can have to grow and improve as a leader. So I would say those are my two um, pieces of wisdom that were passed to me that I think about a lot. Those are great. Erin, I just spent a, an hour or two the other night recording an episode on feedback. And, and absolutely, that was a recurring theme that, you know, it really is a partnership and a, a sharing and a gift. And Mitch, what about you? Maybe the best advice you've received as a mentee or as a learner? Yeah, I'd say probably as a junior faculty member, um, got the advice that when offered an opportunity, unless I was absolutely sure it was not the right fit or the right time, to always say first, let me think about it, uh, and then talk it over with a trusted advisor or mentor. And I, you know, I've come to believe that while the focus on kind of protecting your time and saying no. It's certainly an important skill um, to develop, as particularly as a junior faculty member. I think we maybe overemphasize that and reflect on my own career. It was often the times when I've said yes to opportunities that I wasn't quite sure were going to be right or that I really had the time or the support. Uh, often then they led to some of the most interesting, exciting, you know, innovative things that I've done in my career. So. Um, kind of the reverse, those of you old enough to remember Nancy Reagan's advice about drugs, you know, just say no. Um, I think sometimes it's good to at least say, just say maybe, um, and think about it. And sometimes you should say yes to opportunities, even when they're not clearly leading you down a path that you can see it's going to lead somewhere. Like, take a chance, take some risks. And I think that's the role of a good mentor also, is to help that mentee take some risks in their in their career. Absolutely. For me personally, I, I was invited to be a, a guest on one of the Curbsiders episodes. And I thought, eh, give it a try. I've never tried podcasting. And it has led to some really exciting uh, opportunities over these past couple of years. So I, I love that yeah. piece of advice. Wonderful example. 
Yeah. Um, maybe we will jump into some picks of the week. Um, since you guys already shared book reviews or book recommendations, don't feel obligated. But if you had something that you would like to share as kind of your pick of the week, we are happy to hear from you. Uh, but Yura, do you want to get us kicked off? Thanks, Molly. Yes, I think Mitch has already mentioned his um, obsession with the Peloton, if I'm allowed to call it an obsession. I'm going to plug the Peloton app, which I will use when I uh, am walking to work. It has amazing outdoor um, exercises as well, where you turn on a walk with Adrian Williams, and it's a Latin walk, and you get some of the best music and inspirational kind of life advice, life coaching as you're walking. And for us with our San Francisco hills, it's just really nice to hear amazing music and some life coaching as I walk. So if anyone doesn't have the bike but just wants the app, I really would plug um, getting that subscription. And Molly, I'll turn it over to you. Awesome. I am picturing you like dancing down the street early. Um, yeah, um, my pick is, is a book that I think has been recommended previously on the Curbsiders, which is The Emperor of All Maladies. And I had finally gotten around to reading it, and it was just so fascinating. Um, so it's it's um, billed as kind of an autobiography of cancer or biography of cancer. Um, and it was just so fascinating about kind of the political history that led to cancer treatments being pushed and kind of this idea of war on cancer when we really didn't have the basic science to actually fight cancer. And so cytotoxic chemotherapy was really the only option we had. And that was pushed for all types of cancer. And then really just in the past two decades, have we been able to get back to the basic science and be able to have more targeted therapies. And um, it's it's just been really exciting in these you know, past decade or so to see patients benefiting from that. And I had never really understood kind of the political history behind that. And it was, it was just really interesting. Let's jump into a case um, to help us get into the topic of mentorship as it applies to the medical world. Um, so we'll start with Jackie. Uh, she's a second year internal medicine resident with whom you've worked with in clinic a few times. She is clinically excellent. She's up to date with the latest evidence-based guidelines. She wows you with her interpersonal communication skills. She was told that she should have a scholarly project in residency and emailed you to set up a time to chat about ideas for the projects. Um, how do you approach this encounter? So maybe to take a step back, um, when you get an email like this, kind of what's going through your mind um, and how do you start to think about facilitating next steps in a mentor relationship? Um, maybe Mitch will throw it to you. Sure. Thank you, Molly. Um, so first, I would say I'm not sure that this is going to be a mentoring relationship. I think I, like you know, many senior faculty, frequently get approached for advice on projects or uh, for advice about career, sometimes on you know life issues. I always try to make the time to meet and to learn more, to hear what's going on. But I'd say most of these conversations don't turn into true uh, mentoring relationships. And by a true mentoring relationship, I mean relationships that will be longitudinal. You know, I expect a mentoring relationship to be long-term, that will be comprehensive, and that will be reciprocal um, and collaborative. That is, it's a relationship. It's not just you know, meeting with me, I give advice, and then they go on their way, which is great. That can be helpful. But a mentoring relationship is a much deeper commitment on, on both sides. Um, it's kind of nicely summed up. I've done a fair bit of work in China, and I've actually done some teaching uh, of mentorship in China. And after a, one of my lectures there, one of the faculty came up to me and said, we have an expression here. It's a, a teacher for a day, a mentor for life a teacher for a day, a mentor for life. And and to me, that kind of really nicely summarizes the the depth of a mentoring relationship that goes beyond a, a, you know, a teacher-student interaction relationship. 
And second, I'd say if there is a potential for a mentoring relationship uh, with this student, it's important to clearly define what their needs are and if I'm actually the right person to help address those needs. Um, I'd want to clarify, you know, what kind of mentorship are they looking for? Is this going to turn into more of a career, longitudinal career mentoring relationship? Is this more in the context of a research or project uh, mentorship? I think really important to define the scope and the needs, which will help me determine if I, you know, have the knowledge and the skills, the expertise, and and most importantly, perhaps the time to help the student. Um, you know, sometimes so many of us are well-meaning and will say yes to a mentoring relationship when we actually don't have the time or expertise. I love that, Mitch, because I feel like you kind of came at it from both directions. Like you kind of both want to do some agenda setting almost. If we were thinking about this as a patient encounter, you want to know what the learner, in this case, Jackie, the resident, is coming to the table. What are their needs? What are the expectations? But also kind of doing your own internal check and temperature check. And do I have the time for this? Do I have kind of the energy to address these needs and to help this person with the things that they're asking for? And kind of how can I use this to innovate, create, and kind of self-improve as well? Um, And I wonder, Jane, do you have any immediate reactions when you, uh, assuming you were receiving Jackie's email, uh, kind of what you're thinking about? Thinking very similarly to Mitch, and I would think that the first interaction is almost a triage interaction where, you know, so find out, you know, what is her professional goals? You know, does, is she want to go into private practice, primary care? Does she want to be an academic educator? Does she want to explore research? Um, And so I sort of try to go and because when you do a scholarly project, whether it's a resident you know, student, resident, faculty, you have to have a lot of passion and investment in it. And so you'd want to target a project that meets what her energy and passion is going to be for it. Um, and, you know, sort of, so I try to figure out where she's thinks she wants to go. Um, that being said, if she does a project, she might get drawn in and kind of switch gears to something else. But so I'd, I'd really try to work and figure out where she wants to go. Um, and, what time she has, what scope it is, and then figure out, does it mesh with me and my, you know, what I have, what I'm doing exactly as Mitch said, you know, is, does this, um, extend sort of my area of interest or is it something totally different and, um, would be, you know, an add on and, and probably wouldn't be a good fit for me. So really kind of sorting those, those out. And I agree the mentorship is different from a project, you know, a project director. Um, so that, that's kind of, that's where I would go. Yeah. And, and I think, um, I think that's a really good framework for just sort of starting the conversation with, with that learner or the junior faculty and kind of assessing, is this something that, that makes sense for both of you to enter in this relationship? Um, Mitch, you gave us a great definition of, of what you see as a mentor. Um, Jane, how do you think about like a sponsor or a coach type of relationship and how that differs from a mentorship? Right. So I think a mentor can also be a sponsor, um, but sponsorship is distinct in that it really is creating opportunities for the mentee or the sponsoree. Um, for example, introducing them specifically to individuals who and giving giving them opportunities, you know, creating opportunities for them. So, you know, both Mitch and I are division chiefs. And so we have, we may have opportunities for leadership, or we may know, 
you know, somebody is looking for somebody to run something. And so we may create an opportunity or, or f- make a match for something that we know um, would be beneficial to our mentee. And what about a coach? Is that a... And then it's funny because um, when you asked about um, the um, things that we've been um, picks of the week. So I've been doing coach training, physician coach training. And one of the, uh, and leadership coach training. And one of the big differences between mentorship and coaching is that mentorship, you would be somebody who helps guide them, um, to gain skills, or you might direct them in certain ways. Whereas coaching sort of has this underlying assumption that the coachee has the innate skills and abilities. And as a coach, you are helping them to harness their internal skills and abilities and focus so that they can achieve what they're, what they want to achieve and what their goals are. A mentor really helps guide and helps them set goals and, and maybe, you know, have again, maybe a more mutual type of relationship. Whereas a coach, it's really all about the coachee and you, you really, it's where, what they bring, where they want to go and really helps them ask them questions so that they can think and figure out for themselves what they want and where they want to be. Molly, you had asked whether someone would come and say, will you be my sponsor? Well, that can happen, but partly the very definition of sponsorship is that it's something that happens behind closed doors. So I may be sponsoring someone by sending an email to the dean or um, uh, you know, someone in, in, a, in a po- another powerful position at UCSF to say, you should look out for her. She would be terrific in this position. Um, and that faculty member may not even know that I'm doing that on their behalf. That's kind of one part of sponsorship that's quite different from, from mentorship. Um, I have kind of a cute, easy way to distinguish between coaching, mentoring, and sponsoring. Um, I'll share with you. And uh, so it goes like this. A coach deals with job performance. A coach talks to you. A mentor deals with relational, is relational and career-oriented. A mentor talks with you. And a sponsor is leadership-oriented, and a sponsor talks about you. So a coach talks to you, a mentor talks with you, and a sponsor talks about you. I think that's a nice, clear way of thinking about it. Yeah. I agree. I think one thing that I heard folks, both of you mention is kind of words that come to mind as definitions for mentorship. I heard long-term, reciprocal, collaborative, guiding to gain skills. And I wonder, do each of you have kind of a, a recipe maybe or something that really defines an effective mentorship relationship in your mind, uh, either in this particular case with Jackie or kind of in general? And maybe I'll turn to Jane first to think about it. So um, I think that the key, and I'm not sure if this is the right word for recipe, but I think the key for me in what I've considered successful mentorship experiences um, is the definition that you co-create and you're conscious about it. You, you really talk, the mentor and the mentee discuss what they want out of the relationship. They set goals and they come up with specific, you know, sort of, I don't want to say benchmarks, but they come up with like how they want to work it, what they want to do, what they would find most useful together. And so each of my mentorship relationships have looked a little bit different from each other because they're different individuals, different goals, different different pieces. Um, so 
I think the recipe is really coming to agreement about what it is that you both want out of the relationship, how you're going to meet, how you're going to communicate, when the mentorship meetings happen, what do you expect? And I'll just sidetrack for a second there, which is um, I've mentored people who are early faculty, early fellows, new fellows, and they don't really know what should happen at the mentorship meetings. And so one of the things I'll do is I'll say, you know, it's useful. And we give a template, a written template of kind of things you might want to bring to that meeting. Now, sometimes the meeting devolves around one topic in depth, but often it's sort of a review of the different aspects and goals of things they're trying to achieve. And then I would say the other piece of the recipe is regular check-ins. How's this going? Is this working for you? Do we need to do something different? that kind of thing. Um, and that's where I said the feedback is really important. And you do it in a way where you set it up ahead of time so that the mentee doesn't have to, you know, sort of wait till they're bursting with dissatisfaction to um, talk with me. I had one fellow mentee who really, really struggled at the beginning of fellowship and really needed a lot of handholding. And I kept in that mode. This was sort of fairly early on in my faculty career. And after about a year, she said, you know, I kind of know what I'm doing now. And she sort of told me, but if I'd had in place regular check-ins, I might have gotten that feedback earlier on. So. I think that's really great practical advice. Yeah. To, to make sure you're checking in regularly. And yeah, Mitch, what, what kind of response did you have hearing that? Yeah, thanks. So, um, you're uh, asked about a recipe and I, you know, I think that the recipe for an outstanding mentoring relationship basically has the same ingredients as a recipe for any healthy and productive relationship. You know, kind of start there. And it should be built on mutual respect, uh, trust, and most importantly, perhaps supported by, you know, by clear communication, which sounds simple, but actually that's fairly complex, as we all know, because we all have relationships and they're always complex. In you know in research mentoring relationships, of course, a mentor also must have the knowledge and the skills that the mentee needs to advance their work. Um, in career mentoring, that shared knowledge, content area, skills is less important, um, but the mentor has to be fully committed to the mentee's success and also willing to share their network and to share their resources. I think that's that's also um, key. But I'd also like to come back to a point that I think Jane has made that's absolutely, um, absolutely key as well, which is this idea of promoting alignment and the mentoring relationship to make sure that mentor and mentee are on the same page, both in terms of the long-term goals, like where's the mentee heading in their career, but also how are they going to get there? What are the steps that they need to take? in order to get there. And one thing we haven't mentioned yet are is what I think is a super helpful tool in ensuring kind of this alignment and mentoring relationships, which is an individual development plan, or some people call it a career development plan. Um, and these IDPs, I'll just use the individual development plan, the IDP, answers two questions. It's where is that mentee headed with their career and how will they get there? Um, and you know, we can talk for a couple of hours about an IDP, but I encourage the listeners to to look them up and to start integrating them into their mentoring relationships. And they're basically, you know, simply both a process and a product. If I just summarize really briefly, the IDP, the process is that self-reflection on the part of the mentee. And they have to do the work to think about, 
um, as Jane was saying, kind of where are they headed? What's important to them in their career? What kind of contributions do they want to make? What kind of career do they want to have? Are they, you know, heading into a research career? Do they want to become a an educator? They want to be in private practice. What? Where? Where are they headed? And so that's that self reflection, and then that conversation with the mentor, and then the product is that IDP. You know, then they write it down, and there's some really involved ones with you know lots of sections. And but as far as I'm concerned, you know, you could also use the back of an envelope, and 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 set and set the goals there. But when you write when you write stuff down, it tends to keep both parties sort of engaged and on the same page, literally on the same page in terms of where that mentee is going. And we all know that when you set short-term goals and you have check-ins around those, that um, the mentee is much more likely to stay on track. And you're much less likely to have a meeting, as I've had in the past with mentees, where you know, kind of the mentee shows up and you're like, okay, so like, what are we talking about today? Or what did you get done between last visit? Oh, I thought you were going to do that thing. Or yeah, and is that something that you kind of send out to the mentee ahead of time before the meeting and have them reflect on and fill out, or is that something that as you guys are discussing together, you fill out together? I would just clarify: the IDP is filled out by the mentee. The learner right. fills it right. out, but it's not in a vacuum. And so it could be that you have a few discussions and help them think through some of the areas, but it really is the individual fills out their own IDP. And thank you for mentioning that, Jane. I wonder if I could push both you and Mitch a little bit further kind of to Molly's question on the mechanics of this, meaning I heard, Jane, you mentioned a triage meeting, that this kind of first discussion with Jackie was more kind of where are we going? What is she looking for in this conversation? What are her goals? But I wonder if you both could speak to specifically kind of what is happening in this meeting? Is this the meeting where you're like, and here's an IDP? Or are you saying kind of, just tell me about yourself. I want to get to know you. And then maybe in the follow-up meetings, um, introducing that in, uh, individual development plan. So I would say for Jackie, that first meeting, which I call a triage meeting, is to just get the basics. Like, I have no idea where she's who she is, what she's going, where she's going, you know, you don't jump in with an IDP at that point because you haven't even had the basic conversations. I would say an IDP would be for somebody who really is focused on, you know, wanting to build a particular type of career and move it forward and have do career development. I think you could do a modified version of that for non-academic type careers you know, so more, what skills do you want? What are your personal goals? The IDP really was developed for academic researchers. Right. So you have to take that with a grain of salt, which is that's what it is. But nonetheless, the idea of it is a comprehensive set of evaluations. Like, where do you want to go? What are the skills you need to get to? And can we break it down for some specific SMART goals, you know, specific, measurable um, attainable, uh, you know. <laughs> We've all heard it so many times, so it disappears. Um, yeah. yeah, I know I've done it so many times. In any case, SMART goals. So, yeah, so so I think the IDP is sort of really mostly for academics, but the principles, I think, can be carried through. But I like that idea of having people kind of prepare ahead of time and think ahead of time and, and be able to share their goals in a more concrete fashion. I think that leads to a more productive conversation and helps you both move forward a little more clearly. And I would just say sort of somebody like Jackie, who's a resident, 
may or may not have the skill set to do that prior to meeting. You can ask them to think about it, but it may be some key questions by a senior faculty or by junior faculty to, to help her kind of sort out where she wants to go at that first meeting. And then it may follow up either back with me or, as Mitch said, you know, figure out, is there somebody who might be better than me? Or, you know, if she's very much interested in contraceptive, I'm not the person to be helping her with that research project. But if she's interested in addiction and pain management, you know, that's me. So I, I think that it really depends on where they're going and how much you invest in that first discussion. I was going to follow up with one other um, suggestion that I have given to people that I've mentored around their mentoring, which is when you're working with somebody who you really don't know very well and you don't know sort of what it's going to be like, you don't start with a big investment into a big mentoring or research relationship. And so, for example, with Jackie, let's say she did say she wanted to do something that aligned with my interest in my data. And what I might do is have give her a small task, which is maybe do a lit search on a particular question. And, and we agree together to do that lit search and we make a date that she says she can do it. And then I see what happens. And if she's able to keep that and she does that and we talk, you know, and it seems to be working and she's enjoying that or you know, on both sides, then I, then we move forward, but you don't kind of wholeheartedly jump into something and invest in something until you sort of do some of those preliminary steps. And I'm really clear about it too. I say, let's try this. Let's see how it goes. And if this works, you know, we can move forward with a larger project. If it doesn't look like it's going to work from your time point, or, you know, it doesn't, you don't seem to be enjoying it, then then maybe we'll find something else or I'll help you find something else. I think that's got great concrete advice. You know, sometimes it's just not the right fit and you don't really figure that out until you really start working together. Um, you mentioned kind of some of the pitfalls that can happen, just sort of falling, uh, kind of not having the time to to commit to each other or just sort of communication falling to the wayside. Are there other common fit pitfalls that you see in mentoring early learners or early faculty? Um, things that we should kind of be on the lookout for, things that we can troubleshoot? Yeah. Um, so we did a qualitative study. We interviewed 54 faculty members at UCSF and uh, another academic health center and to try to identify what kind of characterized successful and unsuccessful mentoring relationships. And one of the themes that came out is something that in the failed mentoring relationships, one of the five kind of themes that came out was this perceived or real competition or conflict of interest. And that's uh, uncommon, but very harmful when it comes up. I've, I've seen it come up when, probably most frequently, when it does arise, when, when the mentor is too close to the mentee in terms of their career development. So if the mentor is a um, postdoc and the mentee is a graduate student or something along those lines in research and they they're both needing to be you know to be very concrete about it they're both needing to be first author on the paper um, or there's sort of limited amount of data um, and so that near peer mentorship can be great it can be a really wonderful mentoring relationship but it may be a little more fraught with potential uh, competition or conflict of interest there there are some, you know, more senior mentors, and as they're sometimes uh, referred to as tour mentors, um, who, you know, don't know how to share their network or know how to share their, you know, their resources or credit. 
Um, those are folks, obviously, junior people want to avoid choosing as mentors, and often they can learn about that by just asking around before they engage in a mentoring relationship, because um, often their colleagues are aware of that tendency, unfortunately. Um, the other things that came out in terms of the failed mentoring relationships from this study, and be happy to tell you about the successes as well, but we're talking about failures now, um, were poor communication. I talked about the importance of good communication, but when there's poor communication, that often gets in the way. The, a lack of experience or knowledge or skills on the part of the mentor, again, sometimes being too junior um, to take on that mentee. A lack of commitment, that's often just not truly having the time. And then, you know, this comes up less commonly, but just personality differences, you know, just a lack of chemistry. I think part of the skill set of a good mentor is being able to work with people, you know, all different sorts of people. And even folks who may have different style or different personality than you, you should be able to adapt to that and really learn how to work effectively with all sorts. But if there's too much of a personality difference there, that may get in the way. At least that came out from our from our research. Um, the other thing I think is that mentees, junior, particularly more junior mentees, often feel that the ment that they're sort of taking from the mentor, that you know they sort of don't deserve the mentoring, or they feel very reticent to ask for the mentorship and try to try to teach them that no, that actually it's a bi you know it's bidirectional, it's a reciprocal relationship. The mentor agrees to take you on; they're taking you on because they want to do that. And you should also learn to be proactive in that relationship and learn how to mentor up and um, kind of take charge of a relationship. And that's really hard, obviously, for trainees, for residents or junior people to do with a more senior mentor. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's something to develop over time and something that the senior mentor can, I think, can help the mentee develop as well to encourage them to mentor up. When I ran the General Medicine Fellowship at BU, one of the things we did was we had questions that we had our fellows ask the faculty when they were considering them being a mentor or, you know, they were dating for a mentor, let's say. And, um, and one of the questions we had as they were starting these relationships, how do you like to be communicated with when I have questions, you know, do you like to have regular emails and, or do you want to oh, save it up for a, a weekly meeting or, you know, so you, you talk with the mentor about how they want to be communicated with. You ask these questions so you know sort of how the other person wants to wants to work it. Yeah, that's great advice. It's just so simple and pragmatic, but can be so helpful. And also sort of when the mentee says, you know, I'm having a problem, what's the best way I can reach you if I need you in a hurry? You know, so so they really talk about it ahead of time when there's no hurry or there's no panic or there's no anxiety um, and there's no deadline. And the mentor can say, if you have an abstract due, I need to have it X number of days ahead to be reviewed. I need this much time to review things. So, you know, together to talk about how they like to communicate, what kind of time they need. Um, you know, some people like me will say, just bring it to the meeting and we'll look at it together. And other people say, I need to look at things ahead of time and review and process. So really, you really want to have those conversations about how you like to communicate, how you like to process information really right up front. And that will alleviate a lot of this miscommunication and misunderstanding. 
Thank you, Jane. I was just going to summarize for us and just recall that I heard that mentoring is long-term. There's long-term guidance. It's bi-directional. It's collaborative. You really want to assess if you have the time for it and how it will work for you given your own academic interests, your professional development. Starting with a triage meeting, kind of that small investment up front and be clear about your expectations. I love the idea of telling the uh, mentee, I would love to hear or see an agenda before with this meeting and then a follow-up email with the to-dos and having that clear and explicit communication about how do we like to communicate? How do we like to have the meeting? Do we like to process that information or the PowerPoint together or separately? And then discussing that individual development plan that you can both create and revisit at regular meetings to see how things are going and receiving feedback as a gift uh, as part of that mentor relationship and making sure you have a few SMART goals to follow up on because no medical education podcast is complete without a SMART goal. And maybe Molly, if it's okay with you, I might ask our esteemed guests to flex their mentorship muscles a little bit more with our second case. Yeah, I think this is a great time to move on. Wonderful. So we have Winston here. He is in his third year uh, on faculty in your division. You are his assigned senior faculty mentor. He's productive clinically. He's meeting or almost meeting his RVU expectations every year. This year, though, he started to get a bit behind. He's taking on projects with other senior faculty in the division, though they do not come with funding, and there's not really protected time for him to work on these projects. He has seemed disconnected at faculty meetings recently. You know most of his family and friends from residency are three hours away by plane. You have a biannual meeting scheduled for next week with Winston. How would you approach this meeting? And maybe I'll turn to Mitch first to think about, in this case with Winston and what you're seeing from his behavior and kind of what's coming up for you uh, in approaching this meeting with him. Yeah, thank you, Vera. Um couple of thoughts here. One, you know, here's a faculty member who, if we just want to summarize it, he's not thriving. There's, there's some, there's something going on here. He's not doing well. And so for me, what's the different, I kind of put on my, my internist hat, hat, say, what's the differential diagnosis here of a junior faculty member who's not thriving? And, you know, if we do that, we can probably, we could, we, the, between the four of us here, I'm sure we could come up with a long list above potentially what may, what may be going on. You know, you sort of imply here in the case that he's far from kind of his social support and maybe missing that social support. But of course, there may be many other things that could be going on. Everything from, you know, is there a clinical depression? Is there a substance use issue? Um, you know, is he just simply feeling lonely? Is he wondering whether an academic career is not the right fit for him after all, et cetera, et cetera. So I would, I would go into that meeting with curiosity and active listening and, and concern. And for me, the mark of a good mentor and for me, the, the mark of a successful mentoring interaction when I've had it is that I've heard the mentee's voice a whole lot more than my own voice, that I'm listening and I'm hearing paragraphs from from the from the mentee, not sentences. And I'm mostly um, using my active listening skills to try to get a better understanding of where they're at, what's going on with them, um, and you know, using empathy statements just like one might use in a clinical in a clinical interaction. Right? I can imagine it must be challenging for you with your family and residency friends so far away, or there may be um, an opportunity to and maybe not in the first meeting, but to share your own vulnerability also as a mentor. And there's a lot of discussion when I do mentor trainings about how much the mentor should be 
revealing about themselves in that meeting. And I think, you know, like so many things, it depends. <laughs> uh, if you're doing it in the service of trying to create trust and more openness and trust in the relationship, then um, it can be helpful. So I might, I might say to him, gee, I remember how challenging it was for me when I started my new faculty position. I wonder if that's what's going on for you or something along those lines. Um, whatever I could do to try to, again, create an environment where he feels comfortable uh, talking to me about, about what's going on. I may just sort of create the groundwork for that relationship. And uh, he may then, you know, set up, I may uh, set up another meeting and it may not be till that next meeting that we, you know, he feels comfortable enough to start talking to me about what's going on. Just have a quick comment on, you know, you do have in the case here that the mentor was assigned to him. Um, and that, you know, I would say certainly mentoring relationships that evolve organically through mutual interest or, you know, chemistry are going to be more robust and probably more robust and better than assigned relationships. Um, I would say that assigned relationships are a whole heck of a lot better than no mentor at all for a new faculty member coming to a new institution. And so we do that at our institution. We will make sure that all junior faculty have an assigned career mentor so that at least they have somebody they can meet with and be supporting them immediately. And then the expectation is they may find another mentor to connect with later. But that assignment is is super helpful for folks, particularly when they didn't grow up in that institution where they're now getting getting a jump. Jane, may I ask you if you have other thoughts on approaching Winston in this meeting? So I'm just trying to think. And I think Mitch really said it beautifully, thinking about it. And that's how I was thinking about it. I do think it's pretty common to be overwhelmed as a junior faculty, especially if you've been building a clinical practice. Let's say Winston came in and was building, and now three years in, he's got a full panel, and maybe he's inherited patients from somebody who's retired, and it can be truly overwhelming. And I think if that's part of the piece of the puzzle here, I think validating that um, and, you know, sort of trying to help him identify areas where he wants to grow, things that give him satisfaction and work through that. But there's such a big differential diagnosis of what's going on here that until you sort it out and you really ask him what's going on and how he's doing, it's very hard to know how to proceed. And I would definitely second what Mitch said about the fact that you're assigned to him. And when you meet with somebody twice a year, that's, I don't necessarily call that a mentoring relationship. It's more of a advising, collegial, senior faculty type of relationship. I, I consider mentoring relationships usually having invested much more intensely uh, initially. And then later on, it can be more of a distant or less often, but this doesn't sound like there's been a lot of that up till now. So so I, again, this is more of a advising. And I also wonder if he may need a coach. You know, this is the kind of scenario that a coach may be very helpful where he has a lot of skill sets and helping him identify within him his strengths and ways of reframing and retooling to approach it. So that would be in my differential as well. Does he need a coach to help him harness his own positive and skills 
to figure that out. And maybe sometimes coaching can also help you identify your desires and goals. Perhaps in the differential, he may want to relocate somewhere. And, you know, that's good to know. Of course, you don't want to lose a faculty member after three years because you've invested a lot and they've been been part of your been part of your institution, but you have to really, you know, help people achieve their maximum potential. Um, well, I, there's one thing that hasn't come up, but I think it's important. I want to make sure we get it in, which is the importance sure. of mentoring teams. And so my, you know, my advice to to mentees out there <laughs> is to um, to really think about assembling a mentoring team. Um, I, I know it really starts kind of setting the bar high. Not only are we talking about needing to build robust mentoring relationship, but really also needing to build a robust mentoring team. But to be thinking about mentoring teams and who who should be on that team for you, it's kind of like your council of wise advisors as a, a you know as a trainee or a junior faculty member who's going to help support you in your career development. And there are different you know the, these mentors on the team play different roles. There'll be a career mentor who may or may not, again, be in your area, content area of expertise, but they're there to help support your career development. And then there'll be mentors who are more content area, maybe clinical mentors. If for researchers, there may be co-mentors who would be like the biostatistician on the team, who's not just there to give statistical advice or methodologic advice, but also is invested in their career development. Again, they'll see, you know, there are some statisticians who are on the team and invested in the long-term career development of the mentee. So, and that's true also for clinician educators to be thinking about assembling a mentoring team. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. And I think especially in this kind of situation where he has this assigned faculty advisor, um, you know, figuring out ways to branch beyond that and, and get that support that he needs. I wonder just to kind of highlight something that both of you had mentioned about bringing in teams, bringing in a coach potentially to really cultivate the skills of Winston. I wonder, and we've kind of had a theme of maybe relationships also in this uh, episode, I wonder what happens when you realize maybe a mentorship relationship isn't working. You know, how do we, how do we break up? You know, I've heard that we don't want to ghost, even though it sounds like that's sometimes what happens when there's this kind of fade out. But how do you transition to maybe Winston needing a different mentor or saying, you know, I think a coach would be great for you and I might not be the best person to be this advisor or kind of serve in that capacity. Do you have any practical tips for our listeners about how to, how to pivot maybe a little bit? I'm not sure if this is exactly applicable, but when I moved institutions, I had a number of people that I was mentoring and that I needed to move on from because I wasn't going to be there anymore. Um, I did maintain some mentoring relationships um, distance, although it's a little bit harder. So I think being really clear about your availability and your ability to connect and be there for people is useful. And so I still see some of my former mentees um, and we they'll email me for suggestions and questions or to let me know what's going on. But, you know, just very clear that I'm not explicitly not able to perform because I'm not able to meet with them in the same way. So I think that would be in a, a way of thinking about it where you say, maybe we meet once a year or twice a year and maybe somebody else and you figure out who might be the right person to, to work with them, you know, sort of transition, making a, a, a really thoughtful transition and explicit. 
I mean, sometimes I've had people, I wouldn't say they were strong mentoring relationships. They were more advising relationships where the person's kind of just disappeared, which is very different than what we're talking about, which is where you've been working closely together and maybe it's time to kind of shift the nature of the relationship to friendly, care about you, want to know, keep on going, what's happening with you, your family, your work, but maybe not meeting as regularly or... Right. Yeah, we haven't talked about distant mentoring, but of course, in the not particularly in the Zoom era, I think that's becoming uh, even for mentees close to you, we're doing Zoom mentoring. Um, so we're all learning how to, you know, different kinds of communication skills when we're not in the same room with our with our colleagues or or mentees. Um, so super important to think about distance mentoring, but it doesn't always work, and so sometimes the relationships do transition naturally when one or the other party is, has moved away. I would say, you know, Ira, that you kind of commented the go- on the ghosting, a term I learned recently from my kids, um, that, um, that that's often how mentorship relationships end, and it's not ideal. Um, that's not, you don't want to, you know, it's, you don't want the mentee to see you, you know, down the hallway and have them duck into the closet because they feel funny about having not made the last meeting or whatever it is. That's where, where the misalignment then turns out to move so far as to fracture the relationship. Um, That's what we're trying to avoid. And it's super important. I'm so glad you brought up kind of the end of mentoring relationships because sometimes there's a natural end. And I would encourage kind of annual, Jane had mentioned feedback earlier, kind of annual feedback sessions. How's it going? Is this mentoring relationship still, is it still working for you? Um, Sometimes in a research context, you know, the research, the interests, may move from one area, you know, basic science, more to clinical translational science, and I'm no longer the right mentor uh, for them. Um, uh, Perhaps their interests go from, you know, their clinician teacher to clinician educator, and they really now are pursuing more of an educational leadership uh, career, and that that mentor may may not be a good fit. And again, rather than just have that drift, it's much better uh, to have explicit conversations on an annual basis about how's it going and is this still working for you? Do I still have time as a mentor? I've taken on this new leadership role. Gee, I'm really sorry, but I just don't have the time to devote to you like I used to. So I'm going to have to shift more into a co-mentoring role. And we're going to find some other folks who can step in and really help support you know, your career development in this way now. Um, that's ideal is to have these explicit conversations. And, you know, some people use mentoring contracts. I, I've never used them, but, you know, you can almost figuratively at least say, are we going to sort of re-sign this contract for another year to continue working together? Uh, Maybe that at a certain point in the relationship, you, you know, you don't have to do that anymore. You've been working together for a decade and it's clearly going on. Um, and at a certain point, that relationship transitions from mentor-mentee to peer, as Jane was saying, and then you become, you know, it's a peer. There's still that supportive aspect of it. Um, you know, I've seen very senior, we've, we created a, a Lifetime Achievement and Mentoring Award here, and I see these letters of nomination from very senior mentees writing on their even more senior, writing about their even more senior mentor after a 20 or 30 or 40, literally 40-year relationship. And they say they still turn to this person for advice and support, you know, at various times. And that's, you know, super moving to see uh, the durability of some of these mentoring relationships. But they've also primarily transitioned also to peer peer relationships, and it truly becomes bi-directional. 
Yeah. And that's lovely too when that happens. And in in thinking about being part of those longer term mentorship relationships or just, you know, as you're trying to self-improve, um, do you have any specific tools that you use to keep yourself up to date, tools that you would recommend for people who are trying to become better mentors? Uh, Jane, we can start with you. I think mentorship is sort of like being a physician where you need to continually reflect. You need to go to personal professional development opportunities. You can't, it's not a one and done thing. And getting feedback from your mentees is part of the growth process. So I don't have, I don't know if there's a specific tool. I mean, we have trainings regular trainings at our university and you try to, I try to attend those and I get something out of every time I do it. And so I, I would think that kind of opportunities to reflect, to grow, to go to Society of General and Channel Medicine has wonderful, you know, development programs. And I know many of the other professional, academic professional societies have those as well. So I don't think there's a single key to, to this except continuing your own growth. Can you think of something concrete that sort of changed looking back five years past or 10 years past, something that you no longer do or something that you've started to do uh, in that journey of self-reflection? Mitch? I think I continually strive to give less advice and listen more. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, If I kind of think back over the last number of years as a mentor, I think our impulse, particularly as physicians, is to try to fix things. You know, we kind of, we hear, even coming back to the case, you know, here's a faculty member who's sort of struggling. What can I do to make this better might be our first impulse. And that's a lovely impulse for a doctor. That's what we do. We want to make things better. But most often, we are most helpful by listening and reflecting back what we're hearing, particularly with, um, you know, with, with adult mentees, mm-hmm. our junior faculty mentees and, and trainees. So I'd say that for me as a, you know, I have to continually have to remind myself to not fix, but to, but to listen and to reflect. And in that process, I'm generally most helpful. I think that's great for us all to work on. I was going to say, I feel like we should re- rename CME to be continuing mentorship education, because I just feel like from everything you're saying, Jane and Mitch, I feel like there's constant growth and constant almost adaptation, right? So now there's this hat, Jane, that you're mentioning that you just can't seem to take off and you're having to adapt around your own mentorship skills with this new position or this kind of facet of your identity that's um, that's really difficult to de- detangle. Maybe, Jane, I'll, I'll come to you first and then uh, Mitch, uh, feel free to share as well. I just wonder, are there specific take-home points after this last 85 minutes of amazing conversation um, that you have for our listeners, maybe even specifically around how they can excel as mentors or mentees? I would say my key take-home point is to be upfront in negotiating around the mentoring relationship. Set times ahead of time to review what's going well, what needs to be recalibrated, and be very specific around communication. And I think if you can start off on that foot, the rest can follow. Thank you. That was beautiful. Mitch, do you have take-home points for our listeners as well? Yeah, let me mention three things. Um, One, I just want to come back to the absolute key importance of alignment, that alignment and mentoring is critical to success. 
So whatever you can do both as a mentor and mentee to ensure alignment, whether it be using an IDP or simply, you know, sending emails before and after meetings, et cetera, do it. That uh, you, you don't want to drift away from that from that alignment. Um, number two, something we haven't touched on that's super important is paying attention to kind of implicit bias, stereotype threat, and mentoring, and the importance of for mentors to build their skills and mentoring across differences. We, you know, we certainly need more diversity among our faculty members, but we need all of our faculty mentors to improve their skills and mentoring across differences. Um, so, and that's a whole different skill set. Uh, that's absolutely key to success in, in mentoring. And the, th the third thing I'd say is that um, mentoring helps mentees identify their career sweet spot. And um, having spent some time in Japan and actually done some research on mentorship in, in academic medicine in Japan, I learned the term ikigai. And ikigai is, means the reason for being. And it's kind of why you get up in the morning. And for me, the the ultimate goal of mentorship is to help that mentee identif help identify their kind of career, their personal and professional sweet spot, and help them achieve that so they can really kind of do what they're meant to do uh, in their personal and their professional lives. Great. I think you brought up some, some very important points. Um, anything else that you'd like to plug before we wrap up? Any um, books or websites or projects that you're working on? I just updated a website called mytopcare.org, which is for opioid prescribing. And we're definitely open if people see it and there are areas that you'd like to see expanded on it. Feel free to contact me and work with me on creating new content. Wonderful. Could I shamelessly plug my book? Yes, this is the time. <laughs> <laughs> So um, the book is called Behavioral Medicine, a Guide for Clinical Practice. It's actually in its fifth edition. It's published by McGraw-Hill. And it's a textbook on all aspects of health communication, mental and behavioral health disorders, including opioid use disorders. And there's a whole section on teaching and assessment in behavioral medicine and a chapter on trainee well-being. Well, thank you so much. This has been so fun. And I feel like we've covered a lot. And you know, it's such a big topic. It's uh, something that hopefully this will get our listeners thinking a little bit more and, and help them move forward in their being their best mentor and best, best mentee. Thank you so much, Jane and Mitch. That was wonderful. Learned so much and can't wait to share this. Great. Thank you, guys. So this conversation gave me a lot to think about, and um, I think one thing that I am going to try to work on moving forward from here is uh, thinking about kind of my mentoring community. And I have a really wonderful career mentor and just a personal friend mentor, and she has been such a support for me. Um, but I feel like she's kind of my primary mentor. So I am going to think about how I can reach out to other people and get support in other areas to help me grow as a mentee. Ira, what would you say your kind of take-home is? I'm with you, Molly. I think I need to work on making sure that each of my mentoring relationships are aligned and there's just a really clear sense of alignment. I think one thing I'm going to take away, besides obviously wanting to see your individual development plan on Monday, is asking my mentees about individual development plan for them. And if that's something that they want to come up with and share with me and have us 
meet regularly to revisit. I think it's kind of that circling back, that closed loop communication around the development plan allows me to be the best mentor I can be for them and make sure I'm constantly aligned with their goals. So uh, in addition to reviewing your plan on Monday, I will be you know, <laughs> sending a few emails to make sure I'm reviewing the plans of the mentees that I work with as well. And we want all you listeners to mail in your IDP. Our email is thecurbsidersteach at gmail.com. So we'll be looking for them. I feel like the IDP is kind of what we do for the yearly faculty development, our faculty review, right? It is. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And it, it definitely gets me thinking and, you know, I'm kind of like just coasting along trying to make it day to day. And, and that really does make me set aside the time to to think about it and plan a little bit and think bigger picture. So I, I think I the IDP is a good thing. <laughs> We now believe in it. This has been another episode of our Curbsiders mini-series, The Curbsiders Teach, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com backslash curbsidersteach. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Or contact us at thecurbsidersteach at gmail.com. Special thanks to Dr. Matt Watto and Dr. Paul Williams for their support in this project and their mentorship around podcasting. And to Dr. Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music and to Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. Perfect. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. Until next time, I've been Ira Krzyzanowska. And I've been Dr. Molly Hoyblain.